Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Pete Finn and this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. This episode is the second of three episodes drawing insights from across the 100 episodes which we will reach next week actually um, to explore different aspects of the intersection between the COVID-19 pandemic and democracy. Last week we looked at education and so if you're interested in the kind of how the pandemic intersected with education particularly higher education in the UK over the last year or so do go check out last week's episode in your feed. On this episode we are exploring the intersection between UK policy and um, standards in kind of public life and then finishing off by exploring the Partygate scandal which um, rolled on for well over six months and ultimately led to the downfall of the Boris Johnson government in the summer of 2022. In this first clip, Ariana Giovannini, um, and I apologise Ariana, I'm sure I've not fully said your surname correctly there, um, but in this first clip Ariana talks about some of the issues that can arise or had arise, have arisen during the um, earlier stages of the COVID-19 pandemic as a result of the UK's particularly centralised policy making system. So how has this centralisation affected the response uh, with relation to COVID-19? How has that fed into the last year? Well, I think that uh, there's no doubt that we've learned uh, the hard way, if you like, through the pandemic, what's the problem uh, with over-centralization. And in a sense, the COVID crisis has taken the challenge of over-centralization to a whole new level, uh, laying bare the failings of our governance, over-centralized system of governance. Um, put simply, the depth and spread of power, decision-making points, collaboration, resources, and capacities. These are crucial things in determining uh, the, the effectiveness of policy, but also political uh, choices and responses, especially in a time of uh, crisis. So since the start of the pandemic, um, uh, Westminster has almost instinctively entered in a sort of top-down command and control uh, mode, recentralized most decision making in the face also even even though it was very clear that there were very stark regional differences in the spread of the covid-19 um, uh, in the spread of covid-19 of, of, of coronavirus and also without making any use of and often uh, ostracizing devolved and local government institutions uh, in england and so the result of this was really a kind of a one size fits all uh, sort of approaches that were privileged by the government leading to kind of of nationwide place-blind policy decisions taken by the center with very limited local um, uh, consultation. And this approach has also gone hand in hand, especially in England, with further withdrawal of uh, financial support for uh, local government. Uh, and this comes on top of a decade of austerity. So it's easy to see what's the problem that. And, but, there, but, but what is interesting is that um, even though there was like a kind of a very decisive approach from the center, these kind of central responses to the crisis have been very poor and often uh, contradictory. Uh, decisions imposed by the center on local authorities have often had negative effects on local communities and 
for example, if we look back at, um, at the period from the start of the crisis, uh, we can recall the appalling management or, and distribution of uh, personal protective equip equipment, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, and the continued delays in the, in the sharing of uh, data on infection rates. Then initially central government promised that local authority could spend whatever it takes to kind of tackle the, 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 the uh, help tackle the, the, the crisis on the ground, but those promises were quickly then uh, withdrawn. And also the management of local lockdowns was very problematic. And if we think of what happened in Leicester, for example, that's really a case in point in the sense that you might remember that a listener might remember that during the summer the, 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 uh, the, um, the mayor of uh, Leicester was actually told via a, a speech in, uh, in parliament uh, um, by the health secretary that he, the city that he governs was going into a local lockdown. He had no previous knowledge of that. So that gives you a sense of how centralized we are and what is the problem with that. If a mayor doesn't know that this city is actually going to go in lockdown in a matter of hours. Well, how can they help manage the, the, the crisis on the ground? It's not because they don't have the tools or the capacity to do so, but there is really a disconnect that leads to kind of flawed policy uh, um, uh, responses. In this next clip, in many ways, building on the points made by Ariana, Patrick Diamond explores the place that Westminster has in national policy making and some of the pitfalls that may arise from this um how is so talking turning to whitehall how how is whitehall kind of placed to deliver um kind of policy so you know there is a lot of focus in um uk politics on westminster and the kind of whitehall machinery but um you know uk uh politics and the UK uh, political and governmental infrastructure is devolved in, in numerous different ways. And so how much can um, decisions taken or policies developed from Whitehall trickle down? Like, and how, how effective can it be as it's kind of a fulcrum for, for, for policy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, you know, it's a really important question. And no doubt it will be a question that also informs the, um, the, the the proceedings that take place around the, the official inquiry. And I think there are several ways of thinking about it. So I think one way is to say, um, and this would be a view that would be put forward by defenders of the existing Whitehall machinery, who would say that Whitehall is often criticised um, for failing, for getting things wrong, for not implementing policies quickly enough, for making egregious errors and so on. And there was a flavour of that in the Cummings testimony at the Select Committee. Um, but I think many civil servants would say Whitehall is only as good as the quality of political leadership that's provided. And their argument would be if the civil service is given a clear lead, if it's given clear instructions, if there's a strategy in place and if there's consistency from the political leaders at the top of the system, then the machine will deliver. And so when we see problems like we saw in COVID, the civil service defense would be it was not the machine that got it wrong it was the fact that the leadership coming from the top was not consistent incoherent not well informed uh, in some cases inept and so on and so on so i think that would be the civil service defense of the whitehall machinery i would make two other very quick observations though one is that 
in a devolved context, as you said, so in, over the last 20 years, the UK state has been devolved significantly with major policy responsibilities passing to executives in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, and obviously parliaments and assemblies to keep those executives accountable. Um, one of the challenges that Whitehall has faced, and I think this came out particularly strongly from the case of COVID-19, is around coordinating these different governments effectively, um, making sure that there is consistency around lockdown rules, around the economic interventions that were necessary to try to save the economy and protect um, people's jobs and livelihoods, uh, the kind of public health measures that were necessary and so on and so on. And I think part of what seems to have gone wrong is that the coordination machinery that the UK government is supposed to oversee to make sure that the four governments work together effectively um, in the case of COVID-19, um, this kind of coordination seems to have been either missing or not to have worked um, very effectively. Um, the final issue I just referred to um, briefly is the question of govern governance within England, because of course, we talked there about devolution to the other three nations. There's also the question of England itself. England has 86% of the UK population, so it's by far the largest constituent block within the UK. And one of the other very striking features, I think, of British governments in the last 20 years is that in some ways the governance of England has become even more centralised. Um, Whitehall is trying to intervene and interfere even more aggressively in the activities of local authorities. Financial controls from Whitehall are very severe. Often policy um, is made in such a way as to try and bypass local authorities. We see the creation of all sorts of agencies particularly in areas like the National Health Service that are designed to keep local government away from decision-making. And what this seems to have done in aggregate overall is to create, as I say, a very centralized system of policy-making and delivery. I think one of the issues that came out of the pandemic is that where you have very poorly developed local center relations and where local areas um, struggle to have the autonomy that they need to be effective in terms of service delivery and emergency response, then things can go wrong and you don't get the kind of rapid effective response that you need in a situation like a serious pandemic like um, uh, COVID-19. And you saw that playing out in discussions quite early in the pandemic about, for example, where should test and trace capacity sit? Um, the government decided to create a national agency that was outsourced to the private sector, to CERCO, to oversee the test and trace system. But many local authorities argued that this was a mistake and that in fact that system should have been operated through local councils, through local authorities who were much closer to what was happening on the ground and had real expertise in terms of working with particular um, local communities. Now, over the course of last year, central government in Whitehall did begin to recognise that to some extent because some of the responsibilities for test and trace and public health were gradually given back to local authorities, but it was a very slow and incremental process. And I think the context remains one in which there is a very strong degree of centralization, particularly within English government. And, um, you know, that raises, or that speaks to a broader question, which is, is Whitehall, is, is it possible to run so many services, policies from a single tier of government in Whitehall? Um, and if you try to do that, will things go wrong? And certainly COVID seems to be another example of where excessive centralization, um, you know, does lead to uh, poor policy outcomes. 
I think there is a big debate around that. And I think your international comparative work will be very helpful in coming to a more informed judgment about this, because I think one of the questions that will be asked, not just in the UK, but across all countries will be, did countries do better in dealing with COVID that had more or less centralized political systems? And you can see why in some cases, um, centralization can be advantageous. You know, it allows a very rapid response. Um, it allows you to coordinate agencies very effectively. It's very good for agile decision-making in some respects. But for a country like England, that's a, a relatively large country, a relatively large population, but with a lot of differences um, in terms of differences within areas, different patterns of disadvantage and so on, um, you, you would argue that in a public health emergency, local areas have to have greater flexibility, discretion, autonomy to be able to respond in a way that's effective on the ground. And as I say, I think certainly in respect of English governance, that seems to have been missing during the crisis of the last year. Next up, we've got Sophie Hill. And this is seems like a long time ago now. This was recorded well over a year ago now, this episode. And it was Sophie exploring aspects of her work with relation to what um, Sophie and others have called chumocracy and essentially trying to explore and map in quite some detail how um, connections to those in power at least in the beginning of the pandemic led to um, access to contracts um, coming out as a result of the pandemic um, that were at the very least questionable um, so kind of discussions of cronyism very much um, kind of central to this picture here so once again um, Sophie Hill here um Okay, so turning to the pandemic, um, how did discussions of cronyism evolve early on in the pandemic? I mean, I suppose, because the, the, I guess the argument that the government used continually um, is, you know, they were faced with a national emergency, which they were. Um, we can talk about how they dealt with the early stages of that, I suppose, which is like a related conversation. But I mean, they were faced with this uh, emergency was there much discussion early on about kind of cronyism or when when and then if there wasn't then when did it start to become a feature yeah i think it was a gradual trickle of stories at first um and quite noticeably a lot of those stories were coming not from the big broadcasters or big newspapers but from sort of smaller kind of pro-democracy pro-transparency outlets like Byland Times or Open Democracy, um, who were just scrutinizing the contracts as they were released by the government. Um, and I think as early as April last year, there were um, a number of concerns about politically connected firms winning big contracts. Uh, one early example was Clipper Logistics, um, which won a large contract. Um, Clipper Logistics is run by Stephen Parkin who um, has given like, I think over 700,000 um, pounds to the Tories in the last few years. Um, that's enough 000. to, uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was enough to get him an invite to the leaders group, which is, you know, the, the VIP dinner club for the, the biggest Tory donors where, you know, you get to meet with the PM and other senior officials on a sort of regular basis. So, you know, there, there was already, I think, some clear indications 
um, of these sorts of conflicts of interest. Um, but it took a while for that story to kind of gain momentum. And I think perhaps reasonably, a lot of the media was maybe reluctant to sort of accuse the government of cronyism in those sure. early stages yeah, yeah. when it was very difficult to understand, you know, is this good value for money? I mean, the price of every item of PPE doubled, tripled, quadrupled, you know, in that period. So there was a lot of um, um, difficulty in really assessing what the, what the benchmark should be. And I think it was when we got to the summer that things really started kind of potting up uh, in large part, I think, because of the Good Law Project, which is this um, kind of campaign group that uses the courts to um, um, try and make the government more transparent. Um, and they started taking legal action against the government over um, a number of contracts. Um, the kind of most egregious ones uh, were cases like Pest Fix, which was um, a pest control company that I think on paper had assets of worth about 18 grand. Um, and it won a government contract worth 108 million pounds. So <laughs> probably didn't have the uh, logistics in place to manage that. <laughs> right. I mean, these are things that just on paper are going to raise a lot of red flags. Um, and, you know, Ayanda Capital was another case that got a lot of publicity over the summer. This was a um, uh, a case of um, Andrew Mills, who was an advisor to Liz Trust, acting as a sort of middleman using this investment firm domiciled in a tax haven to somehow supply medical masks to the NHS, uh, which already sounds pretty sketchy, but was then compounded by the fact that 50 million of the masks they supplied were not up to the right standards. I think they had ear loops rather than the kind of head, head loop. Um, so they were never used. So I think at that point, the consequences of, you know, potential cronyism were starting to look very apparent, right? Um, yes, the government needs to get PPE, but if it's paying exorbitant prices, and if it's buying equipment that isn't up to the right standards, this is just a massive waste of taxpayer money. Um, and I think that those kind of stories really culminated um, in the National Audit Office report that came out in November, uh, which was the first kind of official review of how that process worked. And I think the key revelation from that report was that there was a VIP channel for firms with political connections. So if you could get an MP or um, a public official or a peer, to kind of nominate you to go into this channel, you were fast tracked. And we saw many more firms who had those connections winning contracts compared to those who didn't. Um, and we've got some more insight into sort of how that unfolded, I think partly because of these ongoing um, legal battles. Um, so I think we've seen emails where officials were sort of saying, we're, we're drowning in these VIP requests. Um, they just don't have the right certification they don't pass due diligence um, and I think exactly <laughs> um, and, and this is a huge problem because you know it's it's institutionalized cronyism right it's, it was actually designed to give um, uh, our public officials a huge amount of 
um, say into which firms win contracts where there's not really, I mean, to me, there's not really any obvious reason why an MP is a good judge of whether this manufacturer can produce the right type of medical equipment. I mean, they don't have that type of expertise in medical equipment, in logistics, in anything. So it's really hard to see what the benefit of that system was. Next up, we've got Elizabeth David Barrett, who is exploring in a similar vein the role or not um, of potential corruption during the COVID-19 pandemic, reflecting on how we might conceive of that and related kind of um, contracts and the engagement of higher policymakers within that process. Um, and so turning to the pandemic, how has corruption been an issue over the last, I mean, we're a year and a half in now, so certainly mm -hmm. there's still like thing, things are coming in into clarity in, in some ways, especially from the early stages and um, will continue to um, over the, the coming years. But how, uh, where we are at this point, how, how much of an issue has it been? Yeah, so there are a few different areas where it's been an issue. Um, the most obvious one and the one that's got most coverage is in public procurement. So clearly, you know, when a pandemic happens, it's an emergency situation. Governments need to buy a lot of stuff that they didn't expect to have to buy, and they need to buy it fairly quickly. So this was really clear with personal protective equipment, PPE, masks, and, and that kind of thing for healthcare workers. Um, and public procurement is usually built on a whole system that it should be open and competitive. You basically say, we need to buy this, and you invite companies to bid. You give them plenty of time to put together their their bid and then you select the one that's the best value for money. Now, in a, an emergency situation, there's not enough time to go through the whole process. Um, and, and so what you saw is that a lot of procurement and a huge amount of public money was spent on things like PPE without going through those normal competitive processes. Now, some of that I think is understandable. Um, but some of it looks almost like it was really not necessary to do it in those emergency conditions. And, and therefore, you have to ask questions about, you know, why was that method chosen? And also, even within the emergency conditions, it's possible to do some checks and due diligence. Um, and, and that doesn't seem to have been done in many cases. So it seems that instead, the UK government actually created this VIP lane, um, in procurement where they were channeling in people who they had contacts with and um, they seemed to get beneficial um, access and were more likely to get contracts than other people. So procurement is a, a big issue where there's been a, a lot of um, potential corruption. You know, it's difficult often to find exact evidence of corruption, but there's certainly a number of um, risk factors. And in fact, uh, TI, Transparency International, did a, a good report earlier this year where they looked at these red flags or risks of corruption, and they found that about 20% of COVID contracts in the period of February to November 2020 had at least one of those red flags um, for corruption. Uh, so procurement's one area. Another thing is the COVID relief. Um, so particularly loans um, that small businesses were able to access um, during the COVID. 
we don't know that this is necessarily corruption as opposed to fraud, but there definitely seems to have been huge fraud in terms of people accessing those loans when they didn't really meet the criteria, sometimes, you know, setting up um, companies specifically for the purpose. And, and that's large amounts of money and, um, you know, really wasted money. And again, something where you think, you know, this could have been um, done better. And then you've seen some small cases around corruption around vaccines. So obviously that was a, a, a good that was very much in demand. Lots of people wanted to get hold of vaccines, especially at the beginning. And sometimes there were some stories around um, vaccines being allocated according to um, favoritism rather than according to the right criteria set by the NHS. And also things around you know, leftover vaccines and how they were allocated. And does that potentially create an incentive to make sure you've got some leftovers um, if you can then um, use those in certain ways that might benefit or favour? your cronies. So I think those are a few areas where we've seen um, corruption most, most clearly in the pandemic. Next up, and turning our attention to the Partygate scandal, this clip with my former Kingston University colleague Roland Pettit was recorded really early on, or what now seems very early on, um, into the scandal that ultimately, at least in part, led to the downfall of um, Boris Johnson. Um, this was recorded in December 2021, and there had just in the few days prior to this interview been the release of a video to ITV um, that raised serious questions about conduct in the heart of government, which you will hear um, Robin discussing in this clip. Thank you. Um, so to dive right in, I'll just set the scene a little bit. Um, so cases in the UK um, have been trending upwards as they have across Europe um, and they're kind of hovering around about 50,000 cases a day in the UK. Um, and there has been the recent Omicron variant, which I've just mispronounced, <laughs> that was first detected in South Africa, but it's pretty much everywhere. Um, so far as we can tell, and everyone expected to become even more and more um, part of the picture in the UK. And so that's part of the picture in the UK is that that's forced the UK government into its so-called Plan B, uh, which includes things like advice to work from home and people have to wear masks in most indoor settings. Um, but layered on top of that is some pretty incredible um, politics in the UK. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say one of the most dramatic days in recent UK parliamentary history, which in and of itself includes things like Brexit and the proroguing of Parliament and lockdown and uh, everything to do with Dominic Cummings. So, Robin, what has happened? <laughs> how, how long have you got? <laughs> um, I mean, there's been so much going on. Um, obviously, the most recent upheaval has been around the story of an alleged uh, Christmas party taking place in 10 Downing Street last December at a time when London was in a very hard lockdown. Uh, this has been sort of denied by the government. And then, of course, just a few days ago, there was a recording leaked to ITV of the then uh, Downing Street spokesperson joking with another civil servant about this party, which allegedly hadn't happened, and basically sort of wargaming how they would answer questions about this party and laughing about it. Um, and this 
has obviously caused a lot of anger amongst a lot of people. Um, the idea that the at the very heart of government, people were seemingly ignoring restrictions that others were following, often at considerable personal cost last December. Um, lots of people reporting, uh, you know, MPs reporting personal stories of having not been able to uh, see loved ones because they were locked down. Um, ordinary voters venting on social media about how they were not able to see loved ones who were dying because they were following restrictions. And now, seemingly, at the very heart of British politics, people were not following those very same restrictions, which has obviously caused a lot of anger and a lot of upset. Um, the fact that there were a recording of people joking about it has obviously uh, added fuel to a fire that was starting to burn relatively brightly. And it's a story that has been ticking over for about a week. And if you have a story going on for that long and the news cycle does not move on, as a, as a politician, you need to start worrying when something is, is not moving on, especially a story like that. In this clip coming up now, we've got Sam Power and Sam is talking about five or six weeks after Robin had spoken and there had been throughout the five or six weeks, which included kind of Christmas and New Year 2021 into 2022, a slow drip of details about lots of different elements of scan, well, what became scandals around um, parties at number 10, there were kind of it, it, it kept running and running and running. And... I mean, in some sense, there's like a, there, there are amusing elements to this story, kind of egg on your face. But then there's also like the, I mean, whether you're a Republican or whether you're in favour of the monarchy, right, the picture of the Queen going to her funeral <laughs> sat by herself. I mean, that is an awful human image, right? And it's probably one of the reasons why this story continues to run, right? Um, so... With all that in mind, um, how would you surmise what's been going on in the last, well, about six, seven weeks, maybe eight weeks into the story now? <laughs> yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's a story that's been ongoing and just is, isn't really going away. Um, and I think, I think for good reasons, I think, think your, 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 your suggestion about the, the, the picture of the Queen um, is, is is, is sort of just a, a visceral image of someone grieving on their own. Um, and I think it also encompasses um, something that a lot of people were going through at the time, which was um, whether it was around, you know, scores of people who had to um, watch funerals on Zoom or, um, or, or grieve alone um, throughout the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, or just actually, we didn't just have to be grief around death, it was grief around what was, what was going on, loneliness, um, all kinds of issues that people were having that, 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 they, that they dealt with. Um, and the, I think the reason why this, the, 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 the issue about the, 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 the parties that were going on in Downing Street, and I suppose it sounds like the surrounding area as well, um, is that it very it is it's a very visceral um 
representation of unfairness. Um, and there's there's a lot of things that we that, that we know and that we don't know about what the British public um, will will accept and won't accept from from, from their politicians and from from um, from, from yeah from, from people in public life. Um, but one thing that we do know quite clearly is that the, the British public are have have a have an understanding of fairness of what of the way in which um, the way in which politicians ought to function um, and what what's happened with the party stuff is that it's not it's not hard um, despite what Boris Johnson says actually it's it's not a hard thing to grasp um, these rules are not are, are not hard to understand um, we all know what the rules were and we all know the way in which we the way in which we interacted with those rules um, and indeed we all know what sort of was and wasn't acceptable so it's not just about stuff that was necessarily within within the rules we also know what the spirit of the rules were which was that we limit contact with each other at all times um, and that's going to be really really hard but it's going to be for the good of society and from everything that we've seen um, that's what the British public did and the problem that the government have here is that is that whatever the rules are, they did not stick to the spirit of the rules, um, and that's almost as damaging to the British public because because when 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 we have something that is almost I was going to say universally but country, agreed countrywide, which is that um, lockdowns are incredibly people are incredibly supportive of them, and even those that weren't, they knew the the, the way in which they needed to function. And um, when you see those at the very top not adhering to that um, and by having parties which they might claim are work events, but even then um, work events weren't really allowed. And even if they were, you know, we, we know that you weren't really allowed to be doing that um, and everybody does. Um, it's a very almost it's a visceral betrayal um, which sort of moves away from the kind of scandals that um, that you that I would suggest you might be able to ride out as a government because it's not complicated. It has nothing to do with sort of uh, complex parliamentary rules, or it has nothing to do with. So I'm an expert in political financing. Has nothing to do with you know you you often see people getting very exercised or very briefly um, angry about certain donations. We we saw it during the Boris Johnson government about the the, the curtains and the redecorations of of Downing Street. Now that that's quite actually at heart a sort of complex issue of what is and isn't a donation in kind so it's never going to bring down a government but something that's visceral which is almost a betrayal of trust that's the kind of thing that the public um almost immediately see as wrong and um and and then subsequently can be can be really fatal for in, in terms of the politics in terms of the political life of the people that have seemed to have betrayed that trust and that's why we're seeing it going on and on and on that's why it's not going away um, is that it's it's a very visceral easy to understand betrayal of trust and confidence which is very which is the one one of the few things that the the, the British public there's there's great agreement on yeah. next up we've got Robert Ledger another one of my um, former King's University colleagues here Robert is talking about about whether or not we can use previous scandals for a guide for what would 
then happen with relation to Partygate and Boris Johnson. So this clip was recorded in April 2022. So how have the so there's like a there's like a general assertion and general thought in British politics that the Tory party is quite ruthless in getting rid of their leaders. Um, is is that true? Do they do they kind of deal with those that seem like they're imperiled or they might imperil them electorally quite ruthlessly or is that not quite the case? Yeah, I, I mean, that is what they say about Conservative um, Party leaders and kind of the party being ruthless about um, changing leader. But I think that's maybe only, you know, half, half the case. It, it's um, in terms of scandals, the record is, is pretty mixed. So, um, I mean, Thatcher did wobble in 1986 after Westland, but went on to win the election the following year and was kind of, you know, hailed as this successful leader. Going back further uh, in history, there was the Profumo scandal in the 1960s, which did weaken the Tory government, but it didn't, didn't you know, mean a change of leader before the next election. Similarly to John Major, he was weakened by the scandals in the 90s. And although Tory MPs did move against him, I don't think it was for that reason, it was more over the issue of Europe. Um, so the, the pattern of um, Tory MPs trying to get rid of the leader, I think only really holds water when you know, a lot of MPs seats are considered to be kind of threatened. I think the 2019 ousting of Theresa May was slightly different because it contained maybe more of an ideological element because of Brexit. So, yeah, the, the Conservative Party's reputation for being ruthless about the leaders is um, kind of, yeah, partly earned, I think. And I don't think it's necessarily going to be a good guide to what's happening uh, in this case. In this final clip, Anna Sanders discusses why the leadership of Boris Johnson matters. Uh, while he was PM and why kind of issues related to Partygate um, are important, both with relation to the scandals themselves, the scandal itself, but also with relation to broader UK politics. If you have made it this far, then thank you very much for listening. I hope you found the clips from all of the guests um, as engaging and as interesting as I have listening back to them. And thank you, obviously, most of all to the guests who gave up their time across the last two years to explore these topics. Thank you. OK, so, Anna, just before we wrap up, um, why does Boris Johnson's leadership style matter then? I mean, does it have broader policy or narrative importance? I would argue that there's both. So we've seen policy importance. Um, sorry. I would argue that there's both um, policy implications and wider implications that stem from leadership style. So um, leadership style can impact on policy. So my colleague uh, Georgina Whalen has undertaken some quite interesting research on um, hypermasculinity in the context of COVID. Um, and she found that there were policy implications. So. At first, when COVID was beginning, many hypermasculine leaders, um, including Johnson, but also former President US, um, former US President Donald Trump, um, refused to wear face masks or socially distance. And Johnson, 
in particular was quite overly optimistic and downplayed um, the, the severity of COVID. So again, quite evident of this risk taking that we've seen in his in his government. And Johnson, one example is that Johnson said he uh, would continue to shake hands with people despite this risk of COVID. Um, and you might remember uh, he had a hospital visit uh, meeting patients um, in, in the context of COVID and he went around shaking their hands um, shortly before kind of con contracting um, COVID himself. And as a result of this optimism, this kind of delay in, we've seen this delay in um, timely appropriate policy making. So we've seen delays in locking down and mandating face masks. And of course, it's kind of no surprise that um, the UK had one of the highest COVID death rates across Europe. And then what was interesting is that Johnson also built this militaristic narrative around COVID that was based on war and battle. So he referred to COVID as the enemy, but we know how to beat it as we have the resolve and the resources to win the fight. And this militaristic language is quite um, quite common in hyper-masculine hyper leadership styles. So we've seen that with, with Trump and Putin as well. I think hyper-masculine leadership also means that certain issues might be excluded from the policy agenda. And this is equally damaging to men and women. So harder policy agendas like the economy or transport might get more focus, whereas softer policy issues such as childcare, which is also a men's issue, or men's mental health, um, that might be overlooked in a hypermasculine environment. So it's important to remember that there's, there's policy implications for both men and women. Um, I'd also argue that there are kind of electoral implications as well. So since 2017, the Conservatives lost their lead with women voters that they once had. Um, and so I would argue that if they want to appeal to women voters, then it's important um, that they can resonate with them and drop hypermasculinity so that voters can, can see themselves as represented. Um, what's interesting is that evidence has suggested that women have actually been less forgiving of the government's COVID breaches, um, likely because they were probably the ones doing most of the care work during COVID, such as looking after elderly relatives or um, caring for children, but also in more formal care work as well, such as the NHS or social work. So I would argue that there are real electoral implications and that parties should, should really think carefully about this. And then finally, I think there's also this broader importance in the image that hypermasculinity sets about politics. So it can deter women, but and men as well, from wanting to enter politics. And this is particularly problematic when men are currently overrepresented in Parliament. So women make up just 35% of MPs, for example. So hypermasculine leadership style can have an impact on policy but, and have an impact on a broader narrative as well. Sorry, I rambled a little bit. <laughs> no, that was great. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so, Anna, thanks for coming on. It's really, really interesting. Um, if you publish anything else that's got kind of a, that builds on this work, then get back in touch and we'll have you back on. Thank you very much. It's been great chatting to you. Cheers.